1: Hi everyone, Laszlo Montgomery here with a quick promo message for you. First of all, thanks for listening to the China History Podcast. My everlasting gratitude for checking it out. Hope you like it. I wanted to let you know about a couple other teacup media shows. Even if you're not a tea drinker, please go check out my Tea History Podcast. We humans collectively down about a billion cups of tea a day. And other than the water we drink and the air we breathe... Nothing is consumed in greater quantities than tea. The Tea History Podcast explores tea's roots as a bitter medicine that China's tea masters transformed into a beverage that inspired a million great ideas. The history of how tea developed over the ages and how every single civilization on Earth fell for it, it's a great story. The Tea History Podcast. And while I have you, please also give a listen to another history show called the Chinese Sayings Podcast. The Chinese language is chock full of thousands and thousands of these idioms or Chinese sayings called chengyu in Mandarin. Every one of them is grounded in some event or story from Chinese history. And at the Chinese Sayings Podcast, each episode, we look at one Break it down, tell the story behind it, oftentimes featuring historical characters straight out of the China History Podcast. It's always a treat to learn how only four Chinese characters can express so much meaning. Whether you speak Chinese or not, you can still appreciate these short six to eight minute podcasts. I welcome you to check it out, the Chinese Sayings Podcast. Okay, before we start rolling with the episode, let me welcome you to check out my website at teacup dot media, where you could find the gateway to my social media profile, lists of all the Chinese terms used in every episode of every show, the teacup store, where you could buy some nice gear, as well as links to donate to the show and support me and my mission to bring you these podcast shows. Thanks a bunch, everyone, and I hope you enjoy the program. Welcome back, everyone. Laszla Montgomery here, China History Podcast with the second installment of this most popular of topics from modern Chinese history. We left off last time with the Taiping rebels, I guess we could call them that now, no longer the god-worshippers. We saw them breaking free of the area in eastern Guangxi that had been their Yan'an, so to speak, to use a PRC, historical comparison, but unlike the Chinese communists who ended up in Yan'an at the conclusion of the Long March, for the Taipings, their Long March was only just beginning, and it will last from 1851 to 1853, and lead them from Guiping in Guangxi province, to the middle reaches of the Yangtze River, to the city of Nanjing, and their numbers were now well in excess of 40,000 and growing rapidly. For the remainder of 1851, Qing imperial troops chased the Taipings all around this part of Guangxi. In their temporary base, northwest of the provincial capital of Nanning, in Yongan, Heavenly King Hong Xiuquan was organizing and passing out titles left and right. His sworn brothers were now the North, South, East, West, and Wing kings. His two-year-old son, Hong Tianque Fu, was named the young monarch of 10,000 years, and his daughters were all made into princesses. And by the spring of 1852, while the Taipings regrouped and fortified themselves in Yongan, these local gentry militias called Tuanlian, they were now rising to the fore. And these were some of the earliest ones of their kind, at least in the Qing dynasty, who would step up and take care of the job that the Qing imperial bannermen were unable to do themselves. The earliest Tuanlian militias had first sprung up around Sichuan, Shanxi, and Hubei in the late 18th century to aid in the putting down of the White Lotus Rebellion. Now, With the situation getting a little bit dicey, the Qing government had appointed 43 commissioners who led these local Tuanlian militias to take the fight to the Taipings in their parts of China where the Taipings were operating. And these peasant soldiers who joined up and fought for these militias, they were fighting these rebels on their home turf. They weren't Manchu bannermen sent down from the north who didn't have any skin in the game. They were fighting for their lives and their families. So it was natural that these local soldiers fought harder and they had more to lose than just their lives. And as we'll see later on, these Tuanlian, local gentry-led militias, they're the ones who end up saving the day. So right about here with alarm bells starting to ring in Beijing, this civil unrest down in Guangxi, Guangdong, and Hunan that the Manchu rulers at first thought was nothing, well, suddenly, in 1852, now it started to become something. And as I tried to stress last episode, the dynasty and its fortunes were already well into an irreversible decline. And sending a trained army all the way down to Guangxi province... It wasn't as easy as it sounded. The armed forces they had down there already had their hands full trying to suppress an uprising led by the Tian Di Hui, the Heaven and Earth Society. So in 1852, as Hong Xiuquan's rebels were heading in the direction of Changsha, following a similar route that Huang Chao used 979 years ago in his efforts to overthrow the Tang Dynasty, More and more, the Qing government began to subcontract out the fighting of this war to these Tuanlian leaders. And the three names from this period, who are immortalized and who we remember more than any other major figure from this period, besides Hong Xiuquan, were Zhang Guofan and his two protégés, Li Hong Zhang and Zhou Zongtang. This is where they joined the fray. Now you could see from these three familiar names how far back the 20th century warlord era really went. The next generation, following Li Hongzhang, would be led by his protege, Yuan Shikai. That's where this all ultimately leads. 27 of Zheng Guofan's officers would later on serve as provincial governors. But remember, the warlord era that changed the course of history for China in the 20th century, it all began here. Zeng Guofan and his officers, to a man, were all schooled in the Confucian classics, had received a traditional education, and besides fighting against the Taiping rebels, were fighting for the preservation of a way of life that called for this loyalty to the emperor. And for this reason, by the time of the 1890s, Zeng Guofan and his kind... Will be vilified for propping up what many reformers would later try to tear down. Anyway, the first major offensive of the Taiping Rebellion was the siege of Guilin, still in Guangxi Province. And after 33 days trying to take this city, the Taipings had to give up and move on. They couldn't capture the city, but they did manage to seize additional river vessels of various sizes. It wasn't much, but It was the start of what would later become the formidable Taiping Navy. So the failure at the siege of Guilin dealt the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom a heavy blow, almost a fatal blow for Hong Xiuquan in some ways. For just outside of Guilin, in the town of Quanzhou, not the more famous Fujian Quanzhou, this one was in Guangxi, Feng Yunshan was killed by a lucky shot from a Qing army sniper. Feng wasn't only Hong's southern king, his Nanwang. Wang. As you recall from part one, it had been Feng Yunshan, who, you know, with the assistance from Hong Rengan, had built this whole god-worshipper's enterprise from nothing. No one was closer to Hong than Feng Yunshan. So early in the game, end of May 1852, one king was down but there's still four more to go, plus Hong Chen. But that turned out to be only the first kick in the teeth to the Taiping Heavenly King, this younger brother to Jesus Christ. A Zeng Guofan protege and Confucian-trained gentry militia leader, Jiang Zhongyuan went on to hand the Taipings a bone-crushing defeat. Not only did his Hunan army, operating for the first time outside of their home province, not only did they pressure the Taipings into giving up the siege of Guilin, but when the rebel army was on the run, Jiang Zhongyuan's army ambushed them and wiped out at least 10,000 Taiping troops. The first taste of battle for the rebels when they crossed into Hunan was almost at the Guangdong border in the city of Chenzhou, Jiang Zhongyuan's forces will dog the Taiping army for the entirety of their time, heading up to northern Hunan province. Jiang's army had been able to push the Taipings back on their heels in Chenzhou, forcing them to give up on the place and move on. So the Taipings ended up sailing north along the Xiang River in the direction of the capital, Changsha. And By September 12, 1852, the Taiping army arrived in Changsha, and laid siege to the city. Although the rebels were having an amazing harvest in Hunan province, packing on the recruits and seizing vessels left and right, for the life of them, they could not capture Changsha. Even with all those Hakka miners so skilled in digging these tunnels, even they couldn't get past those walls. And then, in an act that some called foolish and others called heroic, Xiao Chao gui, Not only Hong Xiuquan's direct pipeline to the Lord Jesus, but his chief military strategist as well. He one day donned his imperial robes, grabbed a banner, and went to the front lines to rally the Taiping troops besieging Changsha. And he got picked off fast, felled by enemy fire, and later succumbed to his injuries. Between May and September 1852, besides being slowed down and mauled by Jiang Zhongyuan's Hunan army, he lost his southern and western kings. That left the eastern king Yang Xiuqing, the wing king Shi Da Kai, and the north king, who I did not mention last time, Wei Changhui, he was the north king, and an early convert to Hong's version of Christianity. He was actually the one who arranged for the Taipings to make that fateful gathering in Jintian, the town in Guangxi where Hong formally declared the establishment of the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom. So he's another one of Hong's sworn brothers, and along with the other kings, served as one of the primary battlefield generals and right hands to the Heavenly King. Wei Changhui will play a front and center role in one of the defining moments of the Taiping Rebellion, but we'll get to that when we get to that. I also did not mention one more of these uh, Taiping leaders. This one was Qin Gang, who was, he was another Guiping haka who joined up early and made up the top brass in the organization, not as a king, but as a prince. And he'll play a role later on in a palace upheaval that we'll get to next episode in part three. Jiang Zhongyuan had sufficiently slowed down the Taiping army in Hunan to the extent that the Qing military was finally able to get more men down to the front lines. Both the local militia, led by Jiang Zhongyuan and the Manchu bannermen, they chased the Taipings away from Changsha, and from there... The rebels sailed on towards the present-day capital of Hubei province, the cities of Wuhan. That was the next destination. And wherever the Taiping sailed, they gathered more recruits, seized more boats, burnt down towns who resisted them or tried to fight them off. And now, 1852 and into early 1853, the bodies are starting to really stack up here. The march towards 20 million dead is in full swing. The message they were preaching was by now virulently anti-Manchu, anti-government, and anti-Confucian. And with a message like that, it made it easy to find common ground with the local oppressed people who, well, in the Hunan countryside was pretty much everybody. They now had their sights set on Dongting Lake to the north, that was going to be their gateway to the Yangtze River. But in another well-planned ambush, the Taiping army got hit again and half their navy was sunk. And taking these big hits meant the Taipings had to continually bulk up with new recruits. But in this part of rural China, eh, that was easy. But the soldiers Hong Chen was losing in Hunan were his core Haka warriors who had been with him going back to Thistle Mountain days. They were a cut above the rest. The most indoctrinated, they were the most reliable, most experienced in battle, and most loyal to the Heavenly King. That watery area in and around Dongting Lake provided a bounty of new vessels for the Taipings, and they more than offset their losses. Their numbers were growing daily. The size and effectiveness of their navy was also increasing. Their treasury was also looking better than ever, filling up with silver from all the wealth they had been able to seize. They learned from all their mistakes and losses. By the time they entered the Yangtze River Valley, they were no ragtag rebel army by any means. They were disciplined and very well organized and had already seen plenty of intense battle. Remember back in 1848 when Hong Xiaoquan had to dash off to Guangzhou and spring Feng Shan from jail? Well, having to deal with this emergency caused these two leaders of the God Worshippers Society to be absent from Thistle Mountain for an extended period. And that's when Yang Xiuqing and Xiao Chao Gui knocked on the door of Thistle Mountain and cleverly usurped some of Hong and Feng's power. Right away, that should have told Hong Xiuquan that these two couldn't be fully trusted. Well, Xiao Chao Gui was now killed in action, and that left Yang Xiuqing the eastern king. Since even before the time they got to Hunan, a deadly power struggle was already brewing beneath the surface. These two, Hong and Yang, were now set on a collision course. And at a time that this mistrust is percolating beneath the surface they were on the cusp of the finest hour for the taiping heavenly kingdom
0: this episode is brought to you by shopify do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real pos you need shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory shopify pos has everything you need to sell in person Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: So by the end of 1852 in December, after really getting banged up and suffering through these terrible setbacks from pretty much the time they left Jintian all the way to Dongting Lake, they were finally able to claim a major victory in Yuezhou, where the Yangtze River brushes up against the side of the lake, present-day Yueyang. There, they captured a huge cache of weapons, ammo, gunpowder, and more than 5,000 boats. They made it to Wuhan in no time at all, from Yuezhou to Wuhan. Eh, that's a four-hour car ride today. The Taiping rebels marched and sailed up the Yangtze River. And for the next decade, this great river of China became their main highway and the scene of most of the Taiping history from here on out. They took Hankou in December 1852 and built pontoon bridges to the other side of the river to take Wuchang. And right here, end of 1852, this is the turning point for the Taiping rebels' fortunes. By the time they plundered the Hubei Provincial Treasury, The arsenals and all the private property they could get their hands on, not to mention all the thousands of sailing vessels, they were awash with ammo, guns, and money, and the rebel ranks still continued to swell, though not so much anymore with adherence to the religion. This was shaping up to be a full-fledged civil war, rising up against a corrupt and uncaring government was more of a calling for many new recruits by this time. Taiping Bible, eh, not so much. Well, there was no question about it. After the fall of Wu Chang, the Qing dynasty was back on its heels even more. First, in 1842, they had been humbled by foreigners and their weapons of war. Now, a decade later, they were facing a challenge from within, one that wasn't so easily bought off with silver or treaties and promises. Some historians argue this was Hong Xiuquan's big chance. With all that momentum and firepower won in the taking of Wuhan, why didn't he just keep going north and overwhelm the Manchus in Beijing? Many argued such was the state of the Qing military at that moment in time there was a very good chance the Taipings could have toppled Beijing. But the decision was made, despite the momentum they had, not to keep going north. The leadership sought to avoid the risks of campaigning in lands they weren't familiar with. It was a completely different geography than what they were used to, with lots of wide-open, empty spaces, not conducive to their style of fighting. Instead of going north, the decision was made to head east, up the Yangtze, and to plunder all of these great cities so bloated with wealth and all its forms. And by the time you got to the end of the road, you were in Shanghai. So on February 10th, now in the year 1853, the Taiping military machine left Wuchang and their naval flotilla set sail down the Yangtze. Wherever they attacked, going back to the very first battles in Guangxi, the Taiping tradition was to kill every Manchu soldier or civilian down to the last woman and child. And as they went from place to place, that's what they did. The trail of death that went back to Guilin in 1851 was now starting to pick up pace. The people in harm's way didn't know it yet, but this misery and destruction visiting their cities, towns, and villages in 1853, they still had 11 more years of this ahead of them, and now wasn't even the worst part. One after the other, they fell. Jiujiang on February 18th, 1853, followed by Anqing, then Zhenjiang, where the Yangtze meets up with the Grand Canal, and then the great moment occurred. March 19th, 1853, Nanjing, with its rich history that went all the way back to the end of the Shang dynasty with Taibo, Nanjing had been the capital of so many past dynasties, and most recently where Zhu Yuanzhang had set up his Ming dynasty in 1368. The Taiping army went in and took it, just like that. And how they took it? Well, that was a thing of beauty. Aside from attacking head-on, Taiping agents had long preceded the army and had infiltrated the city. And these Taiping operatives, when given the signal, joined in on the attack happening outside the city walls. The 40 or so thousand Manchus, living and defending inside the city, were slaughtered to the last person. And this was despite putting up what was written to have been a valiant Custer's last stand inside their citadel. Hankou, Wuchang, Jiujiang, Anqing, these were all astounding victories for the Taipings that yielded wealth and supplies beyond their wildest imaginations. All were cities of great significance and importance to China. But after Nanjing in March 1853, that catapulted Hong Xiuquan into a much more exalted position. No longer was this some hakka led rebellion that started in Guangxi and spun out of control. Starting with the capture of Nanjing, the Manchu Qing dynasty now had, by every definition, a civil war on their hands. And I said it before, let me emphasize this again, for the dynasty and the shape their military was in, this couldn't have come at a worse time and as Hong savored his victory, the poor Xianfeng Emperor, well, didn't know it yet, but he's going to have another very troublesome and destructive rebellion on his hands, this one closer to home, that was led by the Nian rebels. And their Nian rebellion that had begun in 1851, it would last till 1868, would bring a lot of hardship and torment to the provinces, mostly north of where the Taipings were operating. To mark the occasion of their victory in Nanjing, Hong Xiuquan held a procession in which he was carried to his palace on an elaborately decorated gold-colored palanquin held aloft by 16 Taiping faithful. He wore a crown designed in the style of Christian king, and he wore a yellow silk robe with dragons embroidered on it, and followed behind were a few dozen finely dressed women, riding on horseback, carrying golden yellow parasols, who, who added to this dazzling and momentous occasion. The name of the city was formally changed from Nanjing to Tianjing, from the southern capital to the heavenly capital. Then Hong Xiuquan, once his big moment was recorded for posterity, he retired to his quarters at the very same palace where Zhu Yuanzhang, the Hongwu Emperor, once bedded down each night after he established his Ming dynasty. And this is where the Taiping Rebellion, even though it still had 11 grisly and blood-soaked years to go yet, takes a sort of a left turn, so to speak. Good thing the Qing National Army was in the state it was in, because now would have been a good time to go in and put an end to this whole thing. The top leadership of the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom was divided, and they'd be at each other's throats in a few years' time. The top leader, the Heavenly King, Hong Xiuquan, he lived like an emperor, and for matters of political or economic policy, or anything of critical importance, often Hong or Yang Xiuqing would work themselves up in a trance, commune with the Lord who art in heaven, and his son as well. And with that kind of divine advice, how could anything go wrong? In 1853, when all this is happening, the foreign powers, who were feasting on China's bounty as both a source of manufactures and for its massive consumer market, well, they hopped up on the fence. And as far as where they stood, whose side they were on, well, the Heavenly King or the Xianfeng Emperor, well, they figured for now they'd remain neutral and see how this whole thing played out. And for the next seven years, That's what they did. And rather than take the fight to the finish with all this wind in their sails, Hong Xiuquan devoted his attention instead to building his new Jerusalem, as well as writing all the software for the Taiping movement he was leading, micromanaging the process in every way from rewriting the scriptures, how all households were to be organized, how land would be redistributed, titles, the palace costumes and accessories, everything. And though he doesn't go out much, and none of the foreigners visiting Nanjing can see him up close, Hong became a prolific letter writer, and in his missives with missionaries and other Christian leaders, they all came to the same or similar conclusion that This type of Christianity that Hong Xiuquan was espousing was nothing like they had ever come up against. Very early on, despite the hopes and prayers of Western Christians about this Christian alternative to the heathen Manchus, they knew this was going to be a case of wishful thinking. As for the residents of Nanjing, they settled in for a long occupation of their great city. Though there were plenty of local people who were attracted to the Taipings and their way of life, most were terrified of them, and not a small number hid out for as long as possible, taken to the hills east and west of the city. The new Taiping land law called for land to be divided up amongst all Taiping faithful and their families. Men and women had an equal share. The people were expected to engage in farming, keep what they could consume, and hand over all surplus to public granaries. Life became very regimented, and everyone belonged to a unit that was led by a sergeant who not only adjudicated in the case of any squabbles or disagreements, but they led church services each Sunday, enforced typing doctrine and discipline, and maintained files on everyone in their group. Recruitment was a job that had no end. Those who joined up went through a rigid indoctrination program. Though Hakka Chinese had served as the earliest core faithful, now their movement was open to anyone. To the Nanjing poor, it didn't take long to view their new... Taiping occupiers is simply a different version of the landlords and local gentry whose greed and corruption had kept them down before March 1853. Again, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. And any locals who signed up and collaborated with the Taipings were viewed as traitors and they were despised. And when the pressure on the local populace was applied to embrace the Taiping lifestyle the rules, the religion, and strict adherence to the daily regimen. Well, the native Nanjingers did not like it at all. And the whole matter of confiscation of assets for the common good, well, as you might expect, it met with extraordinary resistance. And besides all that, the leadership and principal cadres of the Taipings, were all these Hakka Chinese who were looked down upon just as much up in this part of Jiangsu as they were down in Guangdong. In fact, local sentiments in general were anti-Taiping in all respects. Their occupation of Nanjing just couldn't have been more disruptive to their daily lives and to the economy as a whole, and not just to the wheels of commerce, but in their takeover of the Yangtze River as well, and how that affected transport. And this extended to the peasantry as well. They too weren't so keen to eat this sandwich. This whole communal pot idea, as we'll see in the late 1950s with forced collectivization and the Great Leap Forward, a lot of people resisted this whole idea of sharing their agricultural assets with their neighbors. You know how it is. It's a natural thing to want what's best for yourself and for your family and loved ones, and less so for society as a whole. And of course, some people worked harder than others, and why should they be forced to share the fruits of their efforts with those who wanted to take it easy? As we'll see, the scale of fighting that goes on in the countryside will come to destroy the whole agricultural infrastructure. It was a never-ending battleground, and as soon as one army passed through and stripped the farmers of all their crops, another opposing army would grab whatever remained. As Hong got settled in, the comedy of errors began in the leadership. Armchair historians seem to agree this two-month respite by Hong was a fatal error. Hong Xiuquan could have stepped up like Zhu Yuanzhang did in 1368 when he finished off the Mongols and created a dynasty that lasted 276 years. Taking and occupying Nanjing was such a massive psychological victory. But in the end, they failed to fully capitalize on this. While Hong was busy focusing on matters of secondary and tertiary importance, the Qing military, used this time to rally and organize themselves. Two Qing army generals were sent down to Nanjing to bring the fight to the Taipings. These were Xiang Rong and Shan. They organized the siege of Nanjing right after the city had been taken in March 1853. And they were able to take control of the north and south of the city on opposite sides of the Yangtze. And by effectively controlling these areas, it left the Taiping army with only being able to move laterally, east and west. So with the foreign powers sitting on the fence and not looking to pick sides just yet, the Qing government were desperately calling on Zhang Guofan to ride in and become their white knight. But he was still in the middle of building up and training his Xiang, or Hunan army, not to mention a navy as well. He wasn't ready just yet to take them on. So thanks to Hong Xiuquan's dawdling, the Qing put up a strong presence both north and south of Nanjing that the Taipings couldn't break just yet. The Taiping leadership knew they had to do something, and the one who came up with their battle strategy was Eastern King Yang Xiuqing remember, he was the one who had direct communication from God. And right about here, with the heavenly king focusing less on ruling and strategizing, Yang starts to quietly fill that vacuum of power. And what the leadership decided was to carry out two coordinated campaigns, one to the north to go take Beijing, and one to the west to Sichuan. And if all went well, The two armies would meet up, and as we'll see next episode, things don't go so well for the Taiping army, and then things really start to fly off the rails. We'll get to all that next time. Now it's mid-1853. Not only is the Qing government facing a civil war, there's going to be uprisings and rebellions all across the country. 1853 also saw the Nian Rebellion really starting to flare up and that mess in northern China went on for 15 more years. In 1854, the Miao people of Guizhou will rise up in revolt, and that'll last clear through to 1872. And already in 1853, the Muslim Hui are on the rampage in Gansu and Shanxi, and in 1855, down in Yunnan too, the Hui are in revolt. And later on in Xinjiang, the Hui will rise up come 1862. In 1854, down in Guangdong, the Red Turban Rebellion is going on. And as soon as they tamp down that fire, the bunti Hakka clan wars start raging out of control. And with everything happening all at once, you could see how, even with the Taipings making all these terrible mistakes and suffering the occasional setbacks that they did, they couldn't be taken down. Yeah, the Xianfeng Emperor, did he ever get stuck with a bad set of years for his reign. And Great Britain's great men of the day looked upon this mess China was in and decided the timing couldn't have been more perfect to go back and renegotiate the 1842 Treaty of Nanjing. And how they go about that and what that meant to foreign support for the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom... That's also for next time. Until that time, this is Laszlo Montgomery with one more appeal to you, my fine listener, to go subscribe to my Patreon or support the show in other ways. I have the best community on Patreon. I'm always interacting with my patrons, so come join us. Got a great AMA mailbag coming up soon. And my Patreon patrons, they've already heard the first three episodes of the new season of the Chinese Sayings podcast. So, please consider supporting me. Okay, more Hong Trend next time. Now it's really starting to get interesting. So do please join us if you can break away for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.